All right, all right. Good morning. Thank you, Bryce, for reminding me where I stand in our style status. It's good to see you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. Welcome to those of you joining us online. How fitting is it today that I'm actually going to be talking about Noah's Ark and the Flood? Like, for real. It's like, okay, here we go. All of you came in. It was raining. I can promise you that a, another worldwide flood will not happen, as we'll see in our story today. But it's very fitting. This is not an ark, but it is a shelter. Come inside. <laughs> uh, we were ta- are talking about Jesus is greater. So my task today is to go over the story of the flood, the story of Noah and the ark, um, and then to look at the rescue that Jesus provides. All right? And I have quite a bit to say. Let me pray for us that uh, I had students in the first service here, took up this whole section, and I, my goal was to keep all of them awake. Well, I failed. There was at least three to five that just, you know, I got beat out by a better preacher, Reverend Slumber, and they, they gave in and fell asleep. And so I'm going to try best to keep you awake for this sermon. Let's pray that uh, God would give us ears to hear today. Father, speak to us. We long to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And uh, we are ready. And we pray that you would help us take our next step uh, towards following you and what that looks like. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, there was a movie made, The Finest Hours, and it was based on a true story. On February 18th, 1952, it's known as the Coast Guard as a historical date, one of the greatest rescue missions known in history. A massive nor'easter splits the SS Pendleton in two, trapping more than 30 sailors inside the tanker's sinking stern. The Coast Guard gets word of this, And Chief Warrant Officer Daniel Clough orders a daring rescue mission. The snow is blowing sideways. The waves are cresting at 70 feet. And four men, four crew members, go out on a lifeboat, captained by Bernie Weber, whose father was a minister and wanted him to go into the ministry, but he wanted to go into the Coast Guard. They went out with a boat that had an official capacity of holding only 12 They finally found, after the the engine had broke down several times in their attempt to rescue these men, they finally found the SS Pendleton split in two, and they found where the men were trapped, and they they were able to get them to climb down a part of a chain known as Jacob's Ladder, and in this rescue, 32 out of 33 sailors were rescued and brought safely back to shore in Chatham, Massachusetts. And the men trapped, the sailors trapped in that tanker were in a dire, dire situation. And they needed something that they could not provide themselves. They needed rescue. They needed someone outside of them, someone beyond them to come and to aid them so that they would not perish. And today we're going to be talking about the rescue with Noah and his boat and Jesus rescue and do some comparing and what does that mean for us all today? So you may have grown up in the church and you might have grown up with the story of Noah and the flood. You may have not and this is your first introduction to it. We have four kids and when they were very young, uh, we read all the little story books to them and we sang the song about Noah and the flood. Anybody remember that song? The animals came, they came in by twosies, twosies, elephants and kangaroosies, roosies. 
Who don't like no kangaroosies, roosies? And so we sang that song to them. But as you start to grow up, you look at Noah and the flood and you maybe have some adult questions to a story that you learned early on. Like there's a lot of people that die. What do we do with that? Like what does it say about God that uh, he judges the earth like that? We'll look at that, hopefully answer that question. Also, you start to have adult questions like, did Noah really go out and get all the animals two by two? How is this possible? Could they have fit on this boat? Would it have survived the flood? Was there even evidence of a flood? And in a, in a brief time, I can't really try to get to all those questions, but what I can say is the uh, origin stories of other ancient Near Eastern religions around the Jewish culture at that time also had evidence of a great flood at around the same time. And there's been recent scientific research specifically on the Black Sea that has some type of evidence that says, yeah, it's very possible there was a uh, known world flood during this time. The other thing is this, this is always a, an explanation that I like to go to. Um, we, when we look at stories like Adam and Eve and you look at Noah and the flood and you look at Jonah and the whale, I always look at Jesus and see how he would have looked at those stories. And if you look at the teaching of Jesus, every instance of those stories, Jesus references and assumes that they are true and that they happened. So Jesus references the days of Noah and Noah and the flood, as we'll see in just a bit. So you may be familiar with the story. You got Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, and then Genesis 6. The world becomes increasingly wicked and evil. You're like, how wicked and how evil? It's so bad that God comes to Noah and says, you know, it's become so wicked and evil. This was not my intention. It was not supposed to be this way. So I'm going to have to destroy it. I'm going to have to start over. This is what he says in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. You say, well, how bad was it? Was this bad? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen to these emotive words. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So often we think of God as this grumpy principal or this, you know, uh, ax to grind police officer who's always looking at us and seeing if we're gonna follow the rules and get them just right. And if we step out of line, we're gonna get smote, smitten, smited, pick one. You know, we're gonna, God's gonna come lash out with his judgment and he's an angry God. But here we see that this is a broken hearted God. He's a God who looks out at humanity and sees the intention of his creation and they're hurting each other and they're abusing each other and they're manipulating and using each other and they're killing each other. And the image of God that God put in humanity and breathed the breath of life on them, he said, I want you to spread out over all four corners of the earth and I want you to bring love and justice and steward my kingdom of peace and righteousness and truth and mercy and kindness. And that's what the image of God means. And you're supposed to represent me in all the world. You're the, visible, you're the visibility of an invisible God. And now he looks down at the, the image that he's put inside a man and he sees that image bearers are destroying other image bearers. You see, in Genesis chapter three, as Trevor talked about, as soon as sin enters the world, you see in Genesis three, death comes, and then immediately in Genesis four, you have fratricide. Cain kills Abel. Brother murders brother, just like that. 
and it continues to progress. And from Cain's line, we see this in Genesis chapter four from a man named Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. Some translations say offending me. I have killed a man for offending me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And so you see a departure, a departure from uh, Adam and Eve as one man, one woman in marriage. Lamech takes multiple wives. He takes them as property. He's departing from that. And not only that, but he boasts about killing someone. He kills someone for offending him. And then he goes and he sits down and he gets his journal open and he writes a poem about it. You could add a beat to it and it might be the first violent rap song in history. He's bragging about how he killed someone. And God looks out at the world and he sees all these image bearers killing other image bearers. And one of the things that we learn about God through the Noah story is this, to wound another image bearer is to wound God himself. He has connected himself to people. He's not a God who is distant. He's not a God who is absent. He's not a God who sets the world in motion like a clock and just leaves. He's a God who is intricately and intimately involved with his creatures. And to wound another image bearer made in his image is to wound God himself. He's grieved and brokenhearted. You have people killing other people and it's breaking God's heart. I think this is actually pretty easy for us to understand this type of heartbreak because we're in families. We have families and like, you're like, well, I can treat my sibling like that, but nobody else can talk to him like that. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody, uh, somebody offends or somebody hurts your family member and that protective instinct rises up within you. Like one day we had one of our daughters, she got off the bus and she came in the house and she was just distraught and upset and crying and we're trying to figure out what happened and she finally told us, she said, well, this boy on the bus said this to me. And I said, where does this boy live? <laughs> and the siblings were like, dad, you can't fight a third grader. And I'm like, watch me, I bet I win. And you have this instinct that rises up within you like, oh no, but see underneath that, underneath that is what? It's you broke my kid's heart and you're breaking my heart. That's why the Bible takes relational sin so seriously. In fact, most of the commandments in the Bible are about how to treat each other. Because to wound another image bearer is to wound God himself. And God looks down and sees so much wicked and violence and he has to intervene. So he comes, says Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah, God comes to Noah. Noah's 500-ish years old. He has several kids at this time. And God comes to him and says this, you know, look, it's gotten so bad. I'm going to have to destroy the earth, but I want you to build an ark. I want you to build an ark made out of gopher wood. And it's going to be a football and a half football field and a half long, and it's gonna be over four stories high. This ark and take shelter and take safety and get the animals in there. And so Noah builds this. Scholars think that it was probably at maximum 55 to 75 years of building this. 55 to 75 years. So if you think about this as well, Second Peter calls Noah a herald or a proclaimer of righteousness that he's building this ark and people are walking by and he's bearing witness 
to the opportunity to come in and to escape the flood, but also to turn from the wickedness, to turn away. And so Noah builds this ark, and then probably 75 years later, rain starts to fall, water start to come, Noah and his family get in the ark, and the door is shut from the outside. And you look at this, and one of the hard, hard things for us as modern people with modern eyes and modern ears is to look at God as judge and bringing judgment, and it's a hard pill for us to swallow. But this is what the Bible, so, so often we get this backwards. So what's the difference between judgment and grace? This is what's going on. Uh, the Bible, when it talks about judgment, it's not necessarily God acting out, just reacting to people. It's God taking his hands off the human heart and allowing humanity to get exactly what they want. This is what judgment means in the Bible. It's a wrestling match between the human heart and God and the human heart saying, no, I want this, I desire this, I'm gonna do this, I'm fighting for this, maybe even I'll you know, try to do spiritual things or pray for this to get this, but I want all these, I have all these inclinations and instead of restraining it, judgment is God saying, okay, I've warned you and I love you and I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to go down this track. I don't want you to make these choices, but you want it so much, I will allow you to get exactly what you want. So, if we haven't been caught for that thing that we're up to, if we haven't been confronted, if we haven't been exposed, if no one has said anything to us, we should be very concerned. Because God's grace is actually an intervention. You see, sometimes we think, oh, it's all happening, it's all fine, no big deal. That must be what grace is. But no, grace is actually an intervention. Grace is an intercession. Grace is a, hey, I'm warning you, I love you. Don't go down this way. I want what's best for your life. And I'm intervening to say, you need to turn. You need to make different choices. You need to get help. That thing that you think is not hurting you is actually killing you, and I'm gonna intervene, whether it's through a friend or through a sermon or through a prayer time or through a song or whatever. I'm gonna intervene and say, hey, you gotta turn around. You see, God's grace is intervening, and he looks down, and you can't have all these image bearers killing one another. So he intervenes. God is faithful when humanity is unfaithful. He's faithful when humanity is unfaithful. You say, well, what is he faithful to? He's faithful to preserve his promise to his creation and to his people. And what is that promise? It's the promise in Genesis 3 that says something like this. Someone will come from the line of humanity who will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will once for all deal with evil and sin and injustice and death. And God made that promise in Genesis 3 and God is committed to that promise and you can't have anyone come from the line of humanity when humanity has wiped all of humanity out. So he's faithful to preserve a line through which the ultimate redeemer could come. That's grace. Unless we understand 
that Genesis 6 through 9 is a retelling of Genesis 1 and 2, we won't get the full picture of what the Bible is trying to say. Listen to this. In Genesis 1, the waters cover the earth before creation begins. In Genesis 7, the waters, the floodwaters prevail on the earth for 150 days. Some have called it a decreation, whereas the Spirit was hovering over the waters and then the waters were parted. Now the waters have come back. In Genesis 1, God breathes, he speaks, and creation obeys. In Genesis 8, God breathes on the water, spirit, pneuma, and he parts the water, and they recede. In Genesis 1, God makes waters recede and dry land appear. In Genesis 8, same thing. God makes waters recede and dry land appear. In Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 9, God tells Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a retelling of the story because God is committed to his creation. He's committed to his creatures. Even when we've been in rebellion, he says, I'm going to take it upon myself at great cost. Even if I have to tear myself in two, I will preserve my promise to send a redeemer to fix this whole mess. The story of Noah is ultimately a redemption story. So the waters come, 40 days, 40 nights, and the floodwaters uh, stay on the earth around 150 days. We don't exactly know how long Noah and his family and the animals were on the ark. And then the water stops and starts to recede, and Noah sends out these, like, test flight birds. He sends out a few, and they come back, and then finally he sends out a dove, and the dove bring back some, brings back an olive branch. Then he sends out the dove again, and the dove doesn't come back. It's let him know that their waters have receded. There's land somewhere, so now we can prepare to exit the ark. And then they exit the ark, and Genesis 9 says this. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign. How do we know that we can take you at your word, God? This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God cleanses the earth. He cleanses the earth in the flood, and then Noah and his family get out, and God retells his covenant promise to Noah, I'm making a covenant with you and with animals and with all creatures and all creation, and I promise this to you. How do you know you're gonna keep your promise, God? God always promises something, and then he gives a sign. Okay, think about it like a wedding. It's like wedding vows. When you make wedding vows, you make promises to each other, and all the witnesses get to bear witness of those promises to each other. But how do you know that it's true, and how do others know that it's true if they didn't bear witness to those wedding vows? Well, there's a sign, and it's the sign of the wedding ring. And the sign of the wedding ring is the seal of, yeah, we made these promises to, to each other in our wedding. We are spoken for. That's the sign. So God says, I will never again cleanse the earth like this. Well, how can we trust you? Well, I will put my rainbow in the clouds. A lot of other translations say, I will put my bow in the clouds. Everyone say, cheshet. 
I know, I caught you off guard with that one. Kind of a sneak attack, right? I'm going to give you another chance. You got to get some good in there, okay? Everybody say chachet. Yeah, very good, very good. Round two, you get extra bonus points for that one. Um, the chachet means this. It means bow. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, do you know what it's translated as? Bow as in bow and arrow. It's a weapon of war. And what God is saying is this. I am hanging up my bow. I am hanging up my weapon of war. Never again will the earth become so wicked and so evil that it will need to be cleansed by a flood like this. That's his covenant sign to all creation and all creatures. So we see God cleanse the earth through this flood and Noah gets out and actually this story kind of leaves you longing for something greater. It leaves you longing for something more and fast forward several thousand years to Christ and you read the Noah story and you're like, okay, but that was a, a really limited rescue. There was only like eight people and what does that leave us hungry for? It leaves us hungry for more people to find some type of ultimate salvation and also did it really do its job? Because you look at Noah, and some of you know this part of the story. He gets off the boat, and he, is, uh, he starts to cultivate the land, and uh, he, he, builds, he, he grows a vine. And similar to Adam and Eve, they took, they took the forbidden fruit, and they ate. Noah grows fruit. He grows grapes. He, he makes wine, and he becomes drunk. So he abuses the fruit of the ground, and they chose to eat the fruit, uh, of the garden and the knowledge of good and evil. And then Noah gets really, really drunk. Something really crazy happens that night in his tent. We don't exactly know what. It's something sexually inappropriate. His son does something. And then Noah wakes up, realizes what happened. He was too drunk to intervene. And then he curses his grandson for it. So even after Noah sees this great act of God and this great rescue and this great cleansing and this great redemption, you see this, um, yeah, God cleaned the earth of wickedness and violence, but there's something still in the human heart that wasn't fixed. Even inside of the ark, there was something broken and fallen and torn. And God, what are you gonna do about that? Adam was born without sin, but chose to sin. Noah was born into sin and could never escape it. It leaves us longing for the question, what about the rescue of our fallen and broken heart that doesn't often do what we want it to do and does what we don't want it to do? What about that? That's where we look, not at the wood of a boat, but at the wood of a cross. And in the New Testament, the wood of the ark is reconstructed into the cross of Christ. And three observations, three very brief observations that help us know how Jesus' rescue was greater than Noah's. First, Jesus gives us a new heart. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus was tempted, as the Bible says, in every way possible that we have been tempted, and yet Jesus was without sin. So he had a perfect, pure heart, and he died a perfect death, completely submissive to the Father, and he rose again with a redeemed, risen body, and he gave what Noah couldn't. Noah couldn't pass on what he didn't have. We can't pass on what we don't have, but Jesus gave a clean and pure heart. He gave people a new heart because he had one, and he lived a 
the perfect life so that he could give us a new heart. This is what Ezekiel says in 30, chapter 36. I will give you a new heart. Don't you want a new heart? And a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone, the hard heart that does not want to submit to God's ways and does not delight in him. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a soft heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus says, I'll give you a new heart. But you have to put it to use. I remember growing up, I was always active outside. It's like, you know, kids in the, that grew up in the 80s, like we were always outside because we got locked out. You know what I'm saying? That's why we drank from the water hose, by the way. You're like, why do you drink from the water? Because we got locked out. Like we had to play outside until dinner was ready. And so we drink from the water hose. We were always outside doing something. And uh, I, I decided to pick up like aggressive rollerblading, the kind where you get these skates where you try to jump onto rails and jump downstairs and, uh, you know, whatever. And so I remember having these pair of rollerblades doing all this stuff, but I needed a better pair of rollerblades. I needed like a, a really good pair. And so I remember they're real expensive. And I asked my parents for Christmas one year. I said, can you get me this kind of rollerblade? It's gonna make me the best skater ever. You know, it'd be so cool and popular in the neighborhood. And so I remember we opened all of our presents on Christmas Eve. That was just how we did it. And then Santa would come visit us on Christmas Day. Well, I opened up all of my presents on Christmas Eve and no rollerblades. You know, you ever feel that? Like, man, so sad. I wake up the next morning and I get up early and it's still dark and I go over to where uh, my dad's chair was and my stocking was there and there was a brand new pair of the rollerblades that I had asked for. Very expensive, very precious, very priceless. You know what I did? I tried them on in the house just to make sure they'd fit. And then they were so new and I didn't want to get them scuffed up. You know what I did? I didn't want to get them dirty. I didn't want to I set them in my closet for like three to four days. Anybody ever do that with something new? You're like, it's so great, it's new. I don't want to use it yet. And I set it in the closet. And I think sometimes we engage our heart like that. Jesus gives us a new heart, but it's not automatic. It doesn't just start to work. Sometimes it's so new and we put it on the shelf in the closet and we're like, I don't exactly know what to do or maybe we're afraid to try, but we actually have to practice with this new heart. That's how it builds muscle. That's how it grows. We have to practice loving. We have to practice forgiving. We have to practice not saying harsh things to people. We have to practice restraining our words. We have to practice uh, guiding our thoughts and submitting them to Christ. We have to practice forgiving. We have to put that heart into practice. And the more we practice it, the stronger it grows. Jesus gives us a new heart. And this new heart has been beating and has been bleeding God's grace for several thousand years. Somebody they asked, asked me the other day, it was a very fair question, do you think Christianity is in decline and has been in decline? And I said, I think in the West, and I think in America, they'll probably trend differently, but there is a little bit of a stall. I think we're gonna continue to grow here in America, but I think globally, no, there's absolutely not a decline. People are converting uh, at significant rates in the East and in South America. People are coming to Christ in droves. In fact, there was a global study done at Gordon-Conwell. There's about 2.2 billion professing Christians right now in the earth. By 2050, if trending continues, there will be 3.3 billion professing Christians on the face of the earth. The gospel has continued to grow and multiply and bear fruit. Jesus' mission is and will be successful. He's King Jesus. He rules and reigns. What can thwart his plans? 
He gives us a new heart, and that new heart has been growing ever since. Jesus takes on God's judgment, whereas wicked humanity took on God's judgment in the flood. Jesus takes on God's judgment, says this in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We were unrighteous. Christ was the righteousness of God. We were sinners. Christ was not a sinner, but on the cross, because he lived a perfect and holy life, he became sin on our behalf so that we could trade out our sin and become the righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees you and me now. We are the righteousness of Christ. We are no longer outside of fellowship with God. We are in right relationship with God. Even when we sin and struggle and fail and put our new heart on the shelf, we are in right relationship with God because of Jesus on the cross. He took on the judgment, the righteous judgment of God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And he became for us sin so that we might trade that out, trade out our unclean clothes and get his clean clothes. In the flood account, the wicked died and the righteous one was spared. With Jesus, the wicked are spared and the righteous one sinks beneath the waters of death. Unlike Noah, Jesus did not escape the flood alive. The waters of death rose and drowned him. Noah survived the flood by taking shelter in the ark. But in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus becomes a shelter, not just for his own family, but for all of creation. His rescue mission aims and is offered to all. And lastly, it's Jesus' patience that leads us to repentance. It's his patience that leads us to repentance. So Noah, you know, 50 to 75 years, opportunity of people seeing this sign, although there was no rain, right? You can imagine like why people might have struggled with that. Like, hey, God's gonna flood the earth and you can come inside this really huge boat, but they, they, there's no waters coming, there's no rain, there's no visible signs. You can imagine people struggling with that, but nevertheless, there's this patience going on. You have 55 to 75 years, so people getting married, having kids, those kids getting married, having more kids and grandkids, and so you have multiple opportunities to turn from your wicked ways, and Jesus' patience leads us to repentance. He says this, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the return of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and give, marrying and giving in marriage. Well, what's wrong with eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage? Absolutely nothing, unless you are unaware of Christ coming and return. Unless you are doing it spiritually asleep and spiritually dead. So we are in our Lenten season, and Ash Wednesday kicks off our Lent season, and I was privileged to be a part of our Ash Wednesday service. Anybody come to that service? It's an incredible service. We love it. And um, we had two services, and you know I was a part of that and got to put the uh, ashes on people's forehead. Well, my wife will tell you, uh, I get like panicky whenever I have to do anything artistic. When someone's like, hey, sign your name here, and I'm like, no, I can't, and it just looks like scribble. 
And then they're like, hey, could you draw this or paint this? No, absolutely not. I have like, I have mild panic attacks when it comes to such a thing. Well, I was completely fine until I realized I have to put the sign of a cross on people's foreheads at Ash Wednesday service. And that first person kneeled down and I was like, dear God, please help me put a good looking cross on this person's forehead so that when they leave, people will think they actually went to an Ash Wednesday service. You know, one of those. And so there's a few things we say to people as they come forward for Ash Wednesday. One of them is this, from dust we came to dust we return. It's a connection with Genesis. It reminds us of our frailty, that we're all gonna die. From dust we came to dust we'll return. But we can also say, repent and believe the gospel. Wake up, be aware, recognize the times, recognize the seasons. So I decided to say this, God loves you and invites you to repent and believe the gospel. But I started to realize several times in that maybe I wasn't enunciating very quickly, quick, uh, clearly because after I said God loves you several times, I got no less than five I love you twos. <laughs> Absolutely precious. It's like God loves you, I love you too. And invites you to repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> Ash Wednesday is the beginning of a spiritual season where we are invited to wake up and recognize our need to turn. That's what it is. It's we do away with something, we sacrifice something so we can be more in tune with our frailty and our need for grace and something greater than us. It's a time to wake up. That's what Jesus was inviting people to. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, and giving in marriage unless you're asleep while you're doing it. Ephesians 5.14, Paul says this, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the invitation. Christ preaching the same message as Noah on a universal scale. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Wake up and start investing in the core relationships of the people that you actually love. Wake up and let go of anger and bitterness and vengeance. Wake up. And give up trying to satisfy your desires and self-destructive choices. Wake up and trade out your old priorities for kingdom priorities of generosity over greed. Wake up and stop people-pleasing. And live from the approval that we already have in Christ. Wake up and start seeking your ultimate satisfaction in him and leave all of your idols, the things that cannot satisfy you, the things that cannot define you, the things that cannot give you purpose and they cannot give you ultimate meaning. Wake up and place the weight of the existence of your soul upon the only one who can actually hold you, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Wake up. And give yourself over again to his unfailing and unflinching love who says, come and take shelter underneath the cross. Here there is safety. Here there is refuge. Here there is rest. Here there is peace with God. Wake up and recognize the times. Even when you don't see any rain, wake up and turn to God once again. May we hear the patience of God continuing to plead with us to take shelter in the cross of Christ. Some of us today, we need to take shelter in Christ maybe for the first time. You've never given over your life to Christ. Some of us today, maybe we've hardened our hearts and we've said, you know what? 
there's just too much baggage, there's too much pain, it's too hard, none of it makes any sense. We need to give over our lives to Christ again. Wherever we are, the message is the same. Wake up and seek Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you for the story of your intervention. God, we thank you for the story that shows us how connected you are to creation, how connected you are to people, how much you really do love us and how you even take on our pain, you take on our tears, you take on our sorrows and our hurts. God, when we hurt, you hurt. When we rejoice, you rejoice. You're a God who's connected. And Father, you've been patient with us Father, for some in this room today, maybe we think we've been getting away with something, but we actually know it's hurting us and it's harming us and it's breaking relationships that we really do care about. And your warning is going out to us today to hear and to turn. May we have ears to hear and the courage to act on that. Father, some today have been hurt, maybe by the church, by their family, by others. Something unspeakable has happened, but that wound has turned into bitterness and resentment and it's become calloused. God, would you tenderly break through? Would you tenderly intervene and remind that person and with that heart and that experience that you will not snuff out a faintly burning wick you will not break off a bruised reed. Your aim is to not condemn, but to heal. And although it may be painful, may we surrender again to the process. Wake us up, God. Wake us up. Let us see. Let us behold you and take refuge in you. In Christ's name, amen.